Welcome back to DGM UK's podcast, placing women and ethnic minorities at the heart of all of our projects. You are locked in with Holly and Danielle, and today we will be speaking to Radha Balani, who is the Director of Design and Facilitation at Think Beyond, a company using sports to bridge the gap between organisations and communities. In this episode, we will be talking about Radha's role at Think Beyond, racism in the Euros and how we can tackle racism in sport. Firstly, thank you for inviting me. Um, really thrilled to be here. So my name's Radha. I work for an organisation called Think Beyond and my role there is to be Director of Design and Facilitation, which is one of many ridiculous job titles I've had, but I get to do really cool stuff. And our role is to help businesses, sport and international development all intersect in one space where we can ensure that businesses can create positive social impact as well as um, driving great business objectives and do so using sport as a bridge builder between the two. So my role spans everything from strategy, design and development through to, um, I do a lot of design thinking, so creating environments and processes help groups come together to unlock great ideas and then I sew those ideas together for them as a strategy Um, and the other big part of my role is that I am a facilitator MC and host uh, of anything that we do that's sort of public facing so everything from designing um, the character development program for the NFL UK Academy through to working with big brands like ESPN through to working with really small NGOs um, that need some support around their own strategy and everything in between. Um, Yeah, I just have a really varied job. And, you know, our job is, you know, purpose is important and everyone talks about purpose at the moment. But for us, it's purpose is absolutely important, but impact really is vital so there are lots of organizations that might have lots of strategies but how are they executing them on the ground who are they engaging with and are they doing it in a way that does no harm to the community and we sort of sit in the middle of that and try and make all of that happen it's amazing you sound like a woman of many talents yeah that was really interesting um you wrote about how you used to play a lot of different sports growing up what drew you to sports and what was your experience like as a south asian female Sure. So I think the first thing that drew me to sports was my father, because I think I was just really bugging him one day and he was watching a football match and he sat me down and he introduced me to football and it was Liverpool v Chelsea. He explained why we were Liverpool fans, which is uh, my father uh, was in the Merchant Navy. His first experience in the UK was in Liverpool. He's a big football fan. Therefore, uh, we are Liverpool fans. And and so it was almost the first proper connection I had with my father, but my, and he's super into his sport, all of it. Um, and then my mum is just really fit and healthy and um, just very active. And then at school life, because I was so different, and I don't think this was a conscious decision as a kid, but it, it was just, it was the easiest way to know where you fitted because... Mm-hmm you've got something that tells you where you fit, right? It tells you if you play centre-back, centre-midfield, whatever sport, goalkeeper, wicketkeeper, fly-half, whatever it is. And, and as I got older, and the more and more sports I played, the more it, the more it gave me so much. 
Um, it gave me a place to be. It gave me an understanding of how to fit in when I looked and was quite different to everyone. Um, it was loads of fun. And um, the fact that I, there's a really big competitive streak in me and not loads of talent. So in between not loads of talent and being really competitive, there's a lot of hard work. And I think it probably, I think if I look back now, I can see that I've, my problem solving capabilities probably came whilst I was playing sports because I knew I could never be as good as quite a lot of the people, but I could outthink a lot of people and therefore I could understand technique and tactics better and then I could work harder. So yeah, it's, um, it's probably the sort of foundations of my life really. That was a really interesting answer, apart from the fact that you said Liverpool fans, because <laughs> me and my family are huge Evertonians. Oh dear. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> I was going to say my family supports Chelsea, so just like the opposite side. Well, I'm sitting here on the King's Road, a stone's throw away from Stamford Bridge, so there you go. You have to be a Chelsea supporter because of that. No chance. No chance. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think sports is a really great thing. I mean, when I was growing up, I always tried a lot of different sports. I can't say I was good at all of them or many of them, but I think it's, as you said, it really unleashes your competitive spirit, getting to play with people and it kind of connects a lot of people together. So in that same article for Sports Pro Media, you said, I need to understand my own privilege as much as I do the level of discrimination that I have faced. Would you be able to elaborate on what you mean by that phrase? Sure. Um, I think as I've got older, as I've forged a career in the sports industry, and as I've seen more and more of what other people have experienced, I can see both the racism I experienced, but also just how lucky I was because I had two, two immigrant parents who were working so hard to, to give us a life here, but they at no point did they ever stop me from playing sports, despite what some of the wider family might have been saying. Not only did they not stop me doing that, they didn't stop me doing the, sport, the sports that very few girls played and certainly no girls of colour. So, you know, I played fly half in rugby. I was a wicketkeeper. Um, I played goalie in hockey. I played football. I played tennis. I played... I was I was an athlete for Cambridgeshire. You know, I, I played everything I could get my hands on, and all they ever told me was that um, they would support me. And you know, we, we didn't have loads of money or anything, but they were they were just really supportive. And I I think they they always told me I could do and be anything I wanted, and that was both academically and in the sports space. And I think that just I don't think that's been the case, A, for women generally, but certainly not women of colour or girls of colour. And I can see now how lucky I was to be in that environment. Um, the, the other piece of privilege, I think, is probably, um, I guess, around the, the fact that I, I got very lucky with, a, with PE teachers who just were amazing and, and inspiring. Um, and I, and I think it's important that I understand that. Um, I'll, I'll give you a really cool example about my parents. You know, we ran a you know, tiny village shop. They came here, they opened up the shop first thing in the morning, they close it last thing at night, they open every day, including Christmas day. Mum runs the house, she's driving us everywhere. And 
when I was I was playing, I played a lot of football and I was, you know, traveling around the country playing and going to training a lot. And it was difficult because mum and dad were running the business for them to be able to do their share of the driving like other parents. And they didn't ever want me to feel bad about that. So they sponsored the team. And, and that's privilege that I am grateful to have, that I have such forward thinking parents in that space. Um, but equally, you know, that doesn't mean there hasn't been discrimination. It's just that I think I've probably been luckier than um, some of my peers and some of the stories that I've heard um, as I've been lucky enough to be in this industry. So I think there's always a balance between the two. Yeah, definitely. Um, and in that same article, you also spoke about the hashtag entitlement gap which is where women are so preconditioned to discriminatory processes, institutions and individuals that even a nod or nudge towards some sort of progress is deemed acceptable. Do you think this gap extends to race? Um, I think it used to. I don't think it does anymore. And I don't think it can. I can give it like a panacea answer to that, um, A, because so many different races experience things differently here in the UK anyway but I I don't think anymore that that will be acceptable and I think we're seeing that you know the 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 banners the slogans they are they are not deemed just acceptable everyone is always asking the next question what happens now how do we change this how do we hold people to account so I I certainly think that um that no longer will it last if, if if it did before but certainly not anymore yeah, I mean I agree with what you're saying because I think that a lot more people are having the courage to speak about issues we see in things like the Black Lives Matter movement that's really gaining prominence and rightly so and I think it would be great obviously to talk about the racism that was directed towards players and also just black people more widely after England lost the Euros because I think that such a big moment that happened do you think that the racism shown would be at the level it was? Because I remember I was at Box Park Croydon on that day and just at the start, there was so much euphoria in the place where people were just really excited. And afterwards, just to see the carnage that happened, it was just quite upsetting to see that, you know, everyone was united. No one saw race before that. And then suddenly afterwards, when they lose, that's the one thing that a lot of people saw. Yeah. Um... Well, firstly, to your first point around more people being able to talk about this stuff. Um, you know, for me, I, I didn't ever really talk about my race um, and I didn't acknowledge it properly. Um, it didn't feel safe to challenge. I let lots and lots and lots of things slide um, until the last couple of years. And I, and I think that the, res the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, the space and the safety that's been created to be able to challenge is really, really important. Um, but to your point about what happened afterwards, it was horrific. I, I'm not surprised that it happened, but some, I, I am, I, I, like you, shocked, upset, disgusted at some of the stuff that came out. and. And, and how it came out. So individuals, for example, of course, some of the most horrific, disgusting tweets saying, I mean, just 
awful, awful things that people can get away with. But also the structural racism that was shown by, um, you know, there was the news channel in Australia whose headline, first of all, said that three black players had missed a penalty. Mm -hmm. Why did that qualifier need to be there? And the reason it was there is because they're sitting as a bunch of white people, probably white male middle class people, um, writing without, with all of their privilege, um, and they that that a national newspaper published that is beyond me, and that is structural racism. And, and I I didn't think that that was there. Uh, I you know I can I, I know that there will always be individuals. Um, and I know that the structures and systems still, I believe, are inherently institutionally racist in many ways, but I didn't think that I'd see something like that as being that actually, you know, that, that sort of blew my mind as much as some of those awful, awful tweets. Yeah, it was it was terrible just to see all of the news coverage. It was like the fact that England had got to the final was kind of forgotten because instead of being able to celebrate what happened there was just so much horrible and toxic racism that we had to address that obviously instead of actually focusing on the positives people just jumped at whatever they could which is such a shame because sport is like something a lot of people love and for like several reasons and it's evident that it shouldn't be we shouldn't have to like focus on the race of a football player like that had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that they missed a penalty um it was terrible but um your organization helped to create the sport for good response fund during the covid pandemic um how many countries have you helped and are there any people or case studies that you can refer to that benefited from the fund sure um so the Sport for Good Response Fund was um, ourselves, our sister charity, a number of other organisations around the world who very quickly um, at the beginning of the pandemic last year just got, we were able to bring in a pool of money together and we we wanted to help in sort of three distinct ways. Number one, get the money out there to NGOs around the world that are using sport to support the most vulnerable people in our communities across the world and give them quick cash grants so they could keep the lights on. And that didn't mean they needed to keep delivering. Some of it was just to stay afloat as an organization. Some of it, some of them pivoted everything that they did and were doing food deliveries, were doing sanitation deliveries, were keeping predominantly young people in some of the most dangerous communities in the world safe. The second bit was that we wanted to um, offer some best practice and bring some experts into a space. We created a number of discussion round tables that helped specific organizations with their challenges. And then finally, we were able to offer um, strategic consultancy to a number of organizations. Um, you know, consultancy that they were never going to, to be able to afford in the normal scheme of things, but because it's paid for by someone else. And this consultancy service was a, was really about, okay, they're safe through the pandemic. How do we help them thrive and set them up for success in the, in the medium to long term? Um, in, in terms of how many countries um, ourselves, I think Beyond and our sister charity, Beyond Sport, the Beyond Sport Foundation, have worked in is over 150 um, and 
in, in terms of gosh, case studies, loads of wonderful case studies. So um, I'll tell you about uh, tell you about three of them very quickly. Um, the first one is one called Youth Run NOLA, which uh, and NOLA is New Orleans, and um, it's an organisation that's really about health inequalities in the New Orleans area um, and how those health inequalities are actually a social injustice and it's an equity conversation. And they use the basic form of running um, as part of their programme of personal development. Um, and the idea is that people of colour, they're not welcome in the running spaces in New Orleans. And, and this charity is about challenging and changing that. However, all of their strategy and all of their communications really didn't say any of the stuff that they were really doing, which was about social justice, the work that they were doing to tackle social injustice, um, the way they were supporting people of colour through what was clearly a horrific time last year with the consistent, um, and not that there weren't significant numbers of murders of black people at the hands of police many times before that, but for the first time it was front and centre across the world. And we helped them really, really put that and their work at so in social justice at the heart of it. And the reason I think that's special is because they're the late, one of the one of the women that set up that organization is an incredible woman. She's a she's a white middle class woman and she set it up and she realized that in order for that organization to move forward, she needed to step away as executive director because it needed a person of color in that role. And I, it's very rare to find someone that's a founder that understands that in order for that organization to move forward, they need to step away. And we were able to support her in that process. So that's one of it. Uh, another one is a wonderful NGO in India called Slum Soccer. Um, and they are, they are just wonderful and they've got so much energy and passion and they work in, in slums across India. And, and if, you, um, if you've ever been in any of the slums in India, you can imagine the, the the concentration of people and then if you think about how covid travels how how awful it must have been for you know it was awful for everyone but imagine you're in that situation when you cannot isolate where hygiene and, and clean water isn't always available to you um and so amidst all of their other work we were able to help them look at their messaging, uh, understand how they can best communicate their messaging and how therefore they are able to work with co corporate partners to show and share with them what they are able to do to make a difference across some of the biggest challenges uh, in India, everything from girls' education and, uh, and menstrual health through to um, huge levels of unemployment, and how they use soccer mainly to do that. But the other really cool, exciting bit we got to do for them was really help position them for when a film comes out about their founder. Their founder is um, a gentleman called Mr. Bass. Um, his son um, is now the CEO of, of this charity, but um, the film is about his father and how he set up this organization and the lives that changed. And one of the most famous actors in, um, in India is playing the lead. And that, if you know anything about Indian cinema, which I don't, but I know a tiny bit, um, that will be huge. Bollywood is massive. It's a wonderful opportunity for this NGO to get some visibility, but they need to be in a position A, 
to be visible, B, to be able to communicate what they do, and C, to therefore get people to donate so that they can move forward. Um, so that was amazing. And the final one I will tell you about, completely different, something called Free Movement Skateboarding, based in Athens. Um, it works with both the migrant community in Athens and the local community, um, particularly those um, who are disadvantaged. It takes a trauma-informed approach and it uses skateboarding, um, particularly uh, in both um, refugee and settlement camps, international displaced persons camps, and then how they um, integrate into society and how we don't end up with a divided society. And again, we help them with communication, messaging, corporate positioning, but we also put together a, a full ambassador strategy for them, which is really important given that skateboarding is now in the Olympics and how can they leverage that to get greater understanding and visibility to how much skateboarding can teach, particularly around the mental health space. Uh, so those are a few of them, but I, I mean, I have hundreds of them and the beauty of it is that there are hundreds of them because it means that sport is being used around the world in many different ways to make lives better, to make the world better. It's just amazing listening to all these case studies. I feel like I can listen to all of the hundred of them and I wouldn't get bored. And just obviously listening to some of the points you've made and really resonating and agreeing with them because I know that with our charity, a lot of um, us are kind of young females and I myself am a young person of colour and knowing that sometimes obviously lower down, there is that diversity that's happening. But as you said, like higher up, it is sometimes harder to have people of colour in higher positions and sometimes I guess for young people it's hard to aspire to be in a higher position you don't see anyone that looks like you up there so I guess to hear a case where someone that is white stepped down so that a person of colour could take the place because she felt that they would use it better I think that's something I've not heard before and I think changes like that do really make me happy that there will be a time where people of colour will be in these high positions and it won't be such a big shock anymore. Right. Um, it's kind of growing up, I guess, in the West. Like, I have an, I am of an Indian background, but I guess sometimes you feel this disconnect with India and think, oh, I'm so privileged to live here in my life that I can never possibly understand what it's like to live in a slum. But I think obviously just trying to educate yourself about what's happening there. And for me... I just obviously am also aware of my privilege, but also I'm really proud to be of Indian heritage and always want to celebrate that as well. That's lovely to hear. And you know, I'm, I'm really pleased that you have that at such a young age. And, I, and I'm sad that I didn't, I, I didn't have that early. My parents gave me the space not to have it. And now I really do have it. And mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll give you just one other little story. Um, as part of the work we do with ESPN, we've opened up a number of safe spaces in communities around the world. And, and you know, I'm talking really dangerous, deprived communities and where, where space, safe spaces to play aren't available. And if they are, they're overpriced. But the most important thing is that the community comes together to build this space with ESPN and the employees. And then once the space is built, they own and manage and run it. But the Sports Exchange Programme is Programming is delivered every single day on that space um, for free and the community really comes together through it and we've now opened two spaces in India with the SPN one in Bangalore and one in Mumbai in Mumbai it's in the Dharavi slum it's the largest slum in Asia, Asia with over a million people in it um, and, and honestly going going there and um, being part of the inauguration of that space was 
was mind-blowing and one of the most precious things for me was my, my parents were visiting India at that time and they were able to come to the opening and it was a really nice way for me to show them how I'm giving back in some way but the other thing I'll share with you is in the um, space we set up in a government school in, in Bangalore it was a, a, an artificial um, rubber crumb pitch and the first time those young children were able to run onto it. They'd never seen anything like it before. Probably never seen real grass before. They all ran on, they were rolling around in the floor. They were laughing, they were smiling. And it was, they, they weren't even playing sport. They were just touching the surface that these people had come and given to them, but hadn't done it to them. They, we did it with them and they made choices about what was there. And, and for me, that's been really special and been a really important part of my own journey to really connect with my own heritage I mean that's really lovely to hear just people obviously enjoying themselves and I think that's really what any kind of sports is about and um, obviously helping people that really do deserve to have happiness um, I know that your organization has done so much to help people um, to kind of infiltrate sporting places that perhaps wouldn't have been given the opportunity otherwise but do you feel that there are enough organizations that are trying to tackle racism in sport head on or do you feel that more should be done i mean absolutely more should be done uh if we've done enough what happened after the the euro final would not have happened there is no way that we could possibly have done enough um and I don't even think about it that it's about more organizations tackling it because I think there are loads of organizations out there who are giving people of color, people of different ethnicities to the to the mainstream in any country opportunities to participate. And that's really important, but that's the symptom. That doesn't get to what's underneath it. What is institutionally, structurally stopping um, this from happening? And what you know, where is the accountability when people do commit the crime, the hate crime of racism? You know, where is that accountability? You know, people are hiding behind these, um, their social media accounts um, and social media companies are hiding behind their dollar bills, quite frankly. Um, and, and I absolutely think that more can, should uh, and must be done. I definitely agree. I mean, it's, I think if it hadn't have happened where England had lost, sometimes you think would, everyone had seen like the ugly face of racism. And I think sometimes with Britain, some people don't seem to see that is a racism problem. And it's just, it really kind of upsets me. And I'm sure it upsets a lot of people as well, just to see that there are so many cases, even of microaggressions or racism that maybe isn't as obvious that happen on everyday basis to people like myself and others around me. And it definitely reared its ugly head after the game. And yeah, it's just, it was a horrible occasion and what could have been such a lovely moment that even though we lost to show that the country did come together, but. But I do think that, um, you know, there's those microaggressions, those smaller, ones that I, I, I am noticing more and more and more um, because my eyes are open to it now and I'm not letting it slide. They are pervasive and they are dangerous. But the other thing that I think came out afterwards, and it's a shame that it had to come out, but um, the elegance, the grace and the dignity 
of those players in the in their responses. Um, and that's not a surprise. They're great human beings. It's got nothing to do with the colour of their skin. But they were able to challenge in a way that was... It just made you go, they are really great humans. It's got nothing to do with the colour of their skin. And I just think that everyone thought that before and they've had to prove it time and time again. It just makes me really sad that the really young men who train hard every day, carry a lot of responsibility on their shoulders. Sure, yeah, they get paid a lot. That's not their fault. Um, you know, they, they are absolutely, they should be the things we're most proud of in this country. And I don't know if you saw uh, Marcus Rashford's response to The Spectator um, recently about how he uses his money. I, I thought it was brilliant. He just completely battered it back gave a very clear explanation um, of the impact that he and his brand associations um, have had with um, people uh, who otherwise would not have what they have now. And thanks to him, they do. So, you know, whatever these awful people have been saying about these young men, every single time they open their mouth and every single time they step on the field of play and every single time they exist in their daily lives, they uh, they are much more British and part of and welcome in this country than than any of those other people. And the other thing I, I just think is really important to say is, even if it, it doesn't matter whether you've done all the amazing things that Marcus has done, as well as all of the other players, if you're just like me, a normal person. I don't deserve racism in the same way that Marcus Rashford doesn't deserve racism, that you don't deserve racism, that anyone else on the street does, doesn't. It doesn't matter what you might have done elsewhere. No one deserves it. Um, and I think that that's a really important, important thing to, to remember as well. I think we can get caught in the, in the conversation that says, oh, but look what he's done, regardless of what he's done. That was unacceptable. And I just think that that's a really important thing um, that needs to be said a bit more often. Yeah, for sure. This has been a really interesting discussion and I know we could talk about this all night, but um, mm. we'll round it up with this final question, which is for any person of color that's had a bad experience playing sport, what would you say to them? Firstly, I'm really sorry um, because sports, is really beautiful and wonderful. Uh, and if it's something that connects with you, it, it can be transformative. If it's used in the right way, it can be completely life-changing. And I would say that like, it shouldn't be like this, but it's like walking around with the first pair of shoes you try on. And if they don't fit, you don't walk around barefoot forever. If you can go back and try again, please do. But if you have experienced racism or discrimination in sport in this country, please report it. Report it to the police, report it to the governing body of that sport and make copies and records of everything you report. Every organization has a complaints policy. Every organization has a code of conduct. Discriminatory behavior is not acceptable in any sports, in any sporting environment. And so there are spaces where you can uh, report it and the more it's reported the more it's challenged uh, and the more we hold those organizations to account 
to make sure they do something with it. Um, please, 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 please do it. But also just please remember that sport is whatever you want it to be. It's you going out for a jog. It's you having a kick about with your mates. It's um, you dancing around your living room. It's everything in between. Um, and it is for everybody. Um, and and there, are, there are spaces and places that are safe uh, and fun and um, informative and educational and inspiring. Um, if you are in one that's discriminatory, get out and report it and, and go and experience the utter joy of sport. And just to say, that doesn't mean be brilliant at it. Whether you're incredible or awful, you can still enjoy it. And that is really one of the most beautiful things about it. Amazing words, Mara, um, to end the episode. Because I think another thing is definitely to be more like the Marcus Rashfords in the world and less like the Twitter trolls, because I feel like some of these people are just jealous, honestly. Um, and if they were so brave, they would you know, show their faces a lot of the time. But thank you again for taking the time to speak to us today, because you had such amazing words to share with everyone. Yes, thank you. Really uh, appreciate the opportunity to share these thoughts and honestly I think what you, what you and your team are doing is awesome keep doing it thank you and thank you for all the work that your team are doing as well and I can't wait to just continue seeing all the work that you will continue to do as well it's happening daily we're being conned by the institutions we used to trust the mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.